Thank you, guys. So preachers always find the end of the year interesting post-Thanksgiving because we all sort of expect that, you know, it's like, uh, I don't know, it's like hold, hold, hold Christmas, you know. And, and we all know that the Christmas story is incredible and life-altering and worth preaching. But preachers also do this weird thing where they plan out preaching calendars and they're going to be finished with, like, say, the book of Colossians, just as an example, by a certain point in time. And then somewhere along the way, God interrupts your plans and he does some stuff, you know, that... It, so I'm just going to say that, that um, we're coming to Christmas. It's coming. Our references slightly today. We'll build and crescendo into it in the weeks ahead. But don't freak out if we're still in the book of Colossians. Is that fair? All of God's scripture is God breathes. So today, I want to talk about something specific. And if you have your Bibles, you can open them with me to Colossians chapter uh, 3 and 4, basically. But I, I, I want to talk something uh, very important. And I think very misunderstood in our day and age. I want to talk about why, why changing the world works differently than the way we want. So if I asked you this morning, just based on your media consumption in the last hours, days, weeks, whatever... Are there some ways you watch and you go, the world needs, man, the world so desperately needs to change. Is there anybody who doesn't think there's something in the world that needs to change? Doesn't think, meaning no hands, no hands. How many of you think, man, our world really needs some help? Like our world really needs to change. Yeah, it's pretty much all of us. By the way, how many of you want to change? Personally, harder question to answer, isn't it? Here's where we usually go with that. When we want the world to change, we want it to happen fast. We want it to happen on our terms. We want the change that we want to see happen come along the way. And <clears throat> can I let you in on a secret? Every four years ago, we think this is our chance. Not our chance as Christians, but our chance as Americans, as though voting only happens once every four years. But, but this is... See, we're about the next 12-ish months. I think really we live in a permanent election cycle anymore. But the, la the next 12 months are going to be insane. Because I don't know if you've heard this, but, but I've heard it every election for you know the entire time I've been a pastor here at Harvest that some of you come to me, and, and you probably know this because I say this regularly, that we're not, we don't care how you vote, we love you. When people walk through the doors, if the most important thing about them is how they vote, we've already lost. Because grace has already lost at that point. And so this is not about how you vote. Please don't misunderstand anything I'm going to say today. But we reach people who, you know, just so happen to sort of vote either direction or no direction or for a like fifth direction, you know? Like Bugs Bunny, some of us, I think, vote for. And, and it's, shoot, I might. But, or at least I feel like Bugs Bunny, but, or the Roadrunner or Wile E. Coyote or something. And so, so here's the thing. Every four years, people come to me. Some of you have in tears, like I don't know what's, gonna happen if this one doesn't go the way we need it to does this sound familiar at all i just want to let you in on a secret no matter how the vote goes in 11 months or so jesus still king god still sits on a throne and his way to change the world will still work. Hardly ever. Like I said, we, we put our, our hope 
and some, some men and women, and to be respectful about it, politicians, but to be respectful about it, I'm not going to make a joke about them. I'm really restraining. <laughs> we put our hope in people who go to Washington or Salem or you know wherever the politicians go. It's misguided hope. It's, 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 it's misguided understanding of how change will work. Why does changing the world work different than the way we want? To be clear, we typically want the easy way. And the easy way, just hear me out. The easy way is we want to vote for change. In fact, it tends to be the slogan of a lot of elections. Right? Hope and change. We want to vote for it. Now, voting is a privilege. I believe that. It's a, it's a right as well as a privilege to be allowed in a country to have an opinion and to be able to express that opinion freely. But here's what we want. We want to express that opinion and then have the world look like us. And we want society to change because we want society to change. But we don't want to change. And honestly, we often don't want to do the work of change. But we want society to change because we think change happens from the outside in. Now let me put this in context. By the way, this is the Christmas reference. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, what kind of Messiah did they want they wanted a king they wanted a military leader did you say that they wanted a political forceful messiah who would overthrow rome who would kick out the worst among them who would take down the enemy and they all missed the birth of Jesus, a baby born in Bethlehem. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling and lying in. There's nothing about a manger that says, New King! In fact, you know the story we three king, I don't sing. Those three dudes from Orient are came looking for a king and they said, where's the one born king of the Jews? And it wasn't exactly easy to find him and it took, frankly, divine intervention for them to find the baby born king of the Jews. And they found him and they knelt down and he was a threat to Herod because every king in power knows that a new king is a threat. Here's the thing. We still want it to work like that today. We want a political Messiah. We want a forceful Messiah. We want to overthrow our enemies kind of Messiah. And what kind of Messiah did they get? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. What kind of Messiah did they get? The way up? It's down. What kind of Messiah did they get? Frankly, what kind of Messiah did we receive? Frankly, truthfully, the kind that will change the world but not the kind that does it the way we want. Does it mean that he doesn't sometimes get forceful? Or let's say it a different way. Did Jesus sometimes get angry? Yeah, was that his norm? No, in fact, what bothered him most was religious people doing what religious people do.
Did he sometimes get angry? Yes. Did he sometimes weep? Yes. But forceful change, political change, top-down power change was not his thing. What was his thing? Love, grace, heart change. We all want the world to change. Interestingly, we're trying to remake the world in our image one vote at a time. And I'm not against voting. Please don't misunderstand me. Privilege, right, responsibility. I vote, you should vote. But we're trying to remake the world in our image one vote at a time while Jesus is remaking all of us in His image. Colossians already reminded us that Jesus' way of love is the true evidence of maturity. Colossians chapter 3, verses we've explored in depth weeks and end, really. Here in the, in the church, in the knowledge of the image of our Creator, Colossians 3.11, there, there is no Gentile or Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised, no barbarian, Scythian, slave, nor free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone and forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. I'm not going to re-preach that. I just want to remind you, this is all connected. The dots connect in the Scripture. Verse 17, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then he turns to wives and he says certain instructions and to husbands and he gives certain instructions. And what he's doing is saying, this is what it means to do whatever you do in word and deed and do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus and to do it in love. This is what it means, wives. And then he says, husbands, this is what it means to do this in love. And children, this is what it means to do this in love. And fathers, this is how we parent our kids. This is how we do it in love. And then he says, slaves. Slaves. I might be a little emotional today. Permission? Nothing wrong with being emotional, right? In fact, we should be emotional about some things. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, notice the language here and how it connects back to whatever you do in word and deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. Not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. And it is the Lord Christ you are serving. And anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs. And there is no favoritism. By the way, every time you and I hear the word slavery, we interpret the word through the lens of American history. Where frankly, we were wrong. Wrong. We interpret it through the lens of our own beliefs and perspectives where sometimes we are wrong. This very text in the American Civil War was held up to say, see, the Bible is pro-slavery. This very text. Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, 
provide your slaves with what is right and fair. Because you know that you also have a master in heaven. This is complicated. Complicated. And frankly, I like preaching through letters and books of the Bible like this because it, 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 I don't get to skip the hard text. Here's really the thing with this. Here's what we wish Paul said. Slaves, run away. Run for your life. We'd all understand. Masters, set your slaves free. That's if I'm human and honest, and I am. That's what I want to read. But that's because I'm reading this with modern eyes through the lens of how much I know we were wrong in slavery. Am I advocating for slavery? Absolutely not. Please don't misunderstand me. In my perspective, slavery is wrong. Racism is wrong. We tend to think slavery has been removed from the world today. That would be wrong. still slavery around the world today. Sex slavery, racial slavery, various others. It's a little difficult for me to say something like, you know, God, I'm not sure you got this right. But tell me you haven't told God that before. He allowed something in our world and you're ready to say, You sure you know what you're doing? We wish Paul said slavery is wrong because slavery is racism. So stand up to Rome and overthrow those stinking Romans and there should be no slaves ever. Slaves, fight your masters, run away from them. Masters, give up all your wealth, set your slaves free. I don't know if you know this, but this isn't the whole story. It isn't. Interestingly enough, in their day, this was also partly about socioeconomics and the way their system worked. And, you know, if you if you were in debt to someone, you could become their slave to work off your debt. In fact, we'll um, we'll sometimes use the word slavery in an insensitive way. When we talk about going to work and slaving away for the boss. Or we talk about, you know, being a, a slave to the lender. And yet, that's biblical language. Old Testament biblical language. That when I go in debt to someone else, that I, that I now owe them. In their day, when you were poor and you received a loan for something, you could become a slave for someone else to work that debt off. So in some sense, this is also talking to us about our work and our workplace. And I I don't want to minimize the slavery aspect, and I'm going to spend the bulk of the rest of my time on this. But I want to make sure you hear this, because this is telling us, you and I, when we go to work... To work like we're working for Jesus. This is telling us that there's no like, I'm called by God to work for the Lord, but you're not if you're a plumber or an accountant or an IT person or a, you know, I, I, I just remind you, sometimes I'm those things too, right? Right? Like, you know, I mean, there are days I walk in and I'm the custodian. There are days where... Where I walk in and I'm the IT guy, there are days where, so does Julie, so does Rachel. 
But we should work and serve like Jesus is in charge because he is at our work. And we should work and serve like Jesus has a purpose for us at work because he does. And we should work and serve like there's no separation between our spiritual life and our work life. Because there isn't. And we really, really like to to categorize things and separate things and say, well, I can act this way over at work. And, you know, I got my Sunday life with Jesus, but I got my Wednesday, Friday life with my work friends. And this sort of blows out of the water all of that. Whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So I don't always like what Paul said here, but there's something to be learned. And what Paul said was, work as unto the Lord, and masters, treat your slaves fairly. And we don't realize how controversial that was, even in its day. How life-altering that was. Because masters had, in Roman world, ownership over slaves. And people are not to be owned. Period. But this is still the world that existed in their day. And in the Roman world, and this doesn't just apply, everything he said here about wives and about husbands and about children and about fathers doesn't just... This is, all of this is a different context in a different world. In the Roman world, wives were also possessions. And children were also possessions. And if you were a master and a slave ran away or stole from you, you were, this is difficult to talk about because it's not that different than our own history, allowed to execute the death penalty yourself. And if you read a passage like this and it makes you question what Scripture is really saying and whether God really knows what He's doing. I want you to keep reading your Bible. Please keep reading your Bible. There's a tremendous argument for ending slavery and it... it, I'm going to show it to you. And it's in this same Bible and it's pages away from this one and it was written in the exact same moment. This was written. Our world talks about these things that are in the world and social change. And and you notice I did that in the title. I think the title was Why Social Change Works Different Than the Way We Want. But when I described it a while ago, I said, "Why, Why Changing the World Works Different Than the Way We Want. Same thing. In a little bit, I'm going to use the word system. Just warning you. Because the word social and the word system have become political triggers where I've literally heard political commentators say, if your pastor says the word social and justice or system and justice or anything and justice, they're not biblical and you should leave your church, then you're leaving the Bible because the Bible says justice. I don't want you to argue with me. I want you to do soul work with Jesus. Just as an example, Micah 6.8, He's shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly. The word justice and the word righteousness, most of the time, biblically, same word. So if you're reading along in your Bible and you see the word rightness or righteousness, which you see a lot in the New Testament, and frankly a lot in the Old Testament, you're talking about the same thing. So if any of this gets a little uncomfortable, and it probably will, again, I don't care how you vote. I love you. But the most important thing I can do, point you to Jesus. At the end of the day, the most important thing I can do is point you to Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I'll be honest with you. When my life gets rattled, 
And I'm in a place where I have to hone in on grace and Jesus. One of the best things that happens in my world is when I turn down the voices of they. And I turn up the voice of Jesus. Down with the voices of media and social media. Up with the voice of Jesus. So just catch this towards the end of Colossians chapter 4. It gets, it gets really like church personal, but in, in, a, in, a, in a way that we often don't understand because um, you understand. If I were to talk to the, the, the leaders and the people here at Harvest, and I'd start using names and you would know them because we're a community, but we don't know Colossae and Colossians and we weren't there and we don't know whose home they met because they didn't have a building, right? We don't know whose home they met in and we don't know. There's a lot we don't know and there's all these names in Colossians chapter 4 and every time the Bible starts naming names, you know what you and I do? So-and-so begat so-and-so. Mm, that's interesting. Hmm. And this is what we do. We just turn the page. Well, that's... Oh, look! This week in the Bible reading plan, we're on the baguettes. We get to skip. Not really. That is what we do, though. Isn't it? So at the end of Colossians has these greetings for all these people in the church. We don't know who they are. And frankly, in a couple of weeks, I'm not going to skip them. I'm going to come right back to them. And I'm going to talk about the un unsung heroes, the unnamed heroes in a local church. Because we have them here, don't we? So I'm just going to read a couple of them. Verse 7, Tychicus, uh, or Tychicus, or however it's pronounced that I don't have every answer to Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He's a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. And I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your heart. And he is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you, and they'll tell you everything that has happened here. And he goes on to name a whole lot of other names and give thanks for them. He says, look, I'm writing this letter to you, and I'm going to send Tychicus and Onesimus, and they're going to give you the full update. Now today, here's how we do that. But you know as well as I do, this didn't exist back then. Not only this in texting, but this in email, and this in Google, and this, and none of this existed, right? And so writing a letter and sending it with a human carrier, not a dude on a pony riding across the U.S. with the mail system, you know, but, but personal escorts of some of the most precious words ever written were sent personally. And if you read the end of most of Paul's letters, you find something like this. Because this is how they ensured that it got from A to B. And, and where was Paul and what was Paul doing? Paul was in Rome in prison. Now, he was under house arrest this time, so not the worst of the imprisonments, and probably not right next to the Roman Forum in the maritime prison that somehow I stood literally 10 feet from and had no idea I was 10 feet from it when I was in Rome this summer. Sorry, I'm not trying to brag. but One of, one of the frustrating things was we were like, we got to find this place, and we are running out of time, and we found it as they were closing, and two days earlier, a day earlier, we were 10 feet from it and didn't know it was there, the maritime prison where Paul was when he wrote First Timothy or Second Timothy, Second Timothy Titus, that kind of, when he was in Rome in a worse prison not long from when he was going to be executed. Here he's under house arrest, but he's in Rome, and he writes to several churches, and Colossae is one of them, but he also writes a personal letter. And he writes Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians at the same time. What we classically in theology refer to as the prison epistles. And you know I always use language like that. Turn to the prison epistles. And you all know what I'm talking about, right? Now you do. Colossians, one of the prison epistles. But he wrote a personal letter at the very same time. Have you ever wondered why the letters in the New Testament are in the order they are? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, right? And then Paul's letters. You know, Paul's letters are in order, in a very specific order, and they're not in numerical order, they're not in chronological order. 
They're in length order. Romans, longest of Paul's, uh, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Romans, those are the longest letters. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, shortest of Paul's letters. They are organized from longest to shortest. And then after the letters to the churches, it's the letters to the individuals. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, and another one that you've probably only rarely read. Philemon. So it's about five or ten pages to the right in your Bible. I want you to find it. He mentioned Onesimus in chapter 4. Here's what was going on in the church. There was a man in the church named Philemon. In fact, the church seems to have met in his house. And he was a master who owned slaves. Uncomfortable for us but normal in their world. I'm not justifying it. I'm describing it. Onesimus was a slave of Philemon. And Onesimus had run away, and it would appear had robbed his master, and somehow, someway, in abandoning Philemon, Onesimus stole some stuff, and he ran to a different part of the world, from Colossae, Eventually, to Rome. Where not knowing Paul, and probably not yet a believer in Jesus, he was likely imprisoned. And he met a man named Paul. And Paul told him about a man named Jesus. And Onesimus gave his heart, to use our language, his life, his soul, to Jesus Christ. There are no accidents in the kingdom of God. There are plenty that you will argue with God about, but there are no accidents in the kingdom of God. And Onesimus finds his way somehow in the providence of God to Rome, and he meets Paul. Somehow, I'm suggesting it probably happened through prison. And Onesimus came to know our Savior, one born to save him from his sins, Christmas. And somewhere in all of that, Onesimus became a help to Paul. He became useful, and that's important language because Onesimus' name means useful. Philemon's name means one who is kind or affectionate. But Philemon the master had Onesimus the slave steal from him and run away. And by Roman law, the law would say, I'm not advocating it, I'm describing it, that Philemon had every right to have Onesimus killed. And that's frankly not right. There is no work context in which I should be allowed to make a decision about another human being's life in a work context. Does that make sense? In fact, I pray the day never comes where I, in protection of my own family or something of that nature, have to make a decision between our lives and somebody else's life. This is, this is everyday life for police officers. It's everyday life for people in Palestine right now. But it's not my everyday life right now. Philemon. One letter, one chapter. You'll never see it written, Philemon 1, colon, 22. You'll never see that. You'll just see Philemon 23. Philemon 8. That's because it's a one chapter book, so we know what the one chapter is. We don't need the one colon. If you ever read it somewhere in a book, that's the way it's going to come across. 
Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, they were together in prison at this point, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, it would appear, we don't know exactly, that Philemon somewhere met Paul and also came to know Jesus. Uh, Things happened like that around Paul. Probably in Ephesus, which is not far from Colossae, when Paul was ministering there for a couple of years. To Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. Also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier. And to the church that meets in your home. Some would suggest that Aphia is his wife and Archippus their son. Others would say, no, these were pretty important people in his house church in Colossae. Either way, it reads the same. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God. I know, we haven't filled in any blanks. We okay? All right, just checking. Yeah, no, I'm dying in my own notes. I'm like, I've been talking forever. We haven't filled in any blanks. We're running out of time. Like, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers. Because I hear about, this is to Philemon, about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. No question Paul had about that. And I pray that your partnership with us, the word would be like fellowship, koinonia, with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. It would appear that Philemon was a very generous person and he had done much to serve people along the way. And Paul's making a grand argument here. And in one of, I would argue, like like when I took communications in college, we could literally study this letter as a great instance of how to write a personal letter that argues for change. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. Sometimes we want to do it on the basis of order. On the basis of I want, built in my image. What works? And the way of Jesus is the basis of love. It is. I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is none other than Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus. Now imagine the word. Onesimus has been gone a long time. Philemon gets this letter. It's probably read in church in front of everyone. Hear the gasp in the room. They all know Onesimus ran away. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. And formerly he was, remember I told you his name meant useful or one who is useful. He was useless to you, play on words, but now he has become useful both to you and me. And I am sending him who is my very heart, someone I care deeply about, back to you. And I would have liked to have to keep him here with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I was in chains for the gospel. But I do not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced, would be voluntary. He's saying, he's saying you owe me a lot, but I'm not, I'm not going to obligate you to something here. All of this is on the basis of love. Perhaps, verse 15, the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave. A brother, a dear brother. And he is very dear to me, but even dear to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. That is a powerful argument. And 
that changes lives. If you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he's done any wrong or he owes you anything, charge it to me, Paul says. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. Just saying, if ever the Bible said, just saying, this is, that would be the proper translation. I'm just saying, not to mention, I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing. Prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you and answer to your prayers. In other words, I hope to be released from prison. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings and so do. And these names should sound familiar. So do Mark. We're going to talk about Mark in a couple of weeks. There's a gospel named after him. There's a reason for that. So do Mark and Aristarchus and Demas and Luke. You've heard of Luke, probably Luke the doctor. My fellow prisoner, my fellow workers also in prison with them. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Philemon 25, not 125. Philemon 25. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. There's the answer. So we probably got some blanks to fill in a little quickly. I probably, Rachel, she's in there somewhere listening for when I'm going to be done. Because she sits through second service, totally fair. I guess I'm taking those extra 15 minutes today. She didn't, so I did. The secret to changing the world is grace. It always has been the secret. It's the way of Jesus. The secret to changing the world is grace. Grace is deeply personal, but was never meant to remain shallow and private. Grace is all of God's kindness and goodness given to every one of us who will never, ever deserve it. Christians like to prance into church like the dogs in the Thanksgiving. Did anybody watch the dog thing after the parade? You know, the dogs who prance and the the dog show, you know? There's a a lot of Christians who prance like those dogs into church, like we're all that. Y'all aren't that way, but there are a lot of Christians that way. Prance like the dogs. Look at us. We're groomed. We're grim. We're proper. Look at us. We're so great. There's words for it. I can't say it. I'm on church. We want grace to invade our culture. But often we don't want grace to invade our hearts and the very way we treat people. That's a grand adventure in missing the point. If grace doesn't change our hearts, grace will never change our culture. Christians should be known as the people most willing to extend grace. who Jesus is. It's who we're to be. And it's much easier to focus on changing the system because the system changing doesn't require anything of me personally. We want to focus on changing the system without focusing on changing our hearts. Changing the system makes us feel better Changing our hearts actually makes us better. And you and I can't change our hearts. And newsflash, we can't change anybody else's either. Why in the world would I think I can change somebody else's heart or yours when I can't even figure out my own? We love to rail about the unfairness of everything that needs to be changed in our world, but we're often not willing to change personally. So how does Jesus change the world? How is Jesus 
been changing the world. And by the way, how did slavery as we know it in the, in the Western half of the world, and I'm going to say primarily in Western Europe and the United States, and some other countries certainly. But how, would, how did the abolitionists in slavery, many of whom, by the way, were Christians, and while all those other Christians stood on the book of Colossians and said, see, we can own slaves, Christians said, have you read Philemon? Brother. Brother. How does Jesus change the world? I need to give you four ways really quick. And I'm just going to, this is a little dense, I realize. And we've read Philemon. See, I put the notes so you can reference this back, but I'm not going to read it to you again. I think it's a powerful thing to read in one letter like a letter. But let me tell you how Jesus changes the world. Number one, grace always works from the inside out. So change begins with changed hearts, specifically my changed heart. Right? Paul had said grace and peace to you. And Paul talks about how Philemon had refreshed the, heart, the hearts of the Lord's people and how he was praying that he would have a deepening understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. He was appealing on the basis of love. Grace always works from the inside out. See, grace leads to heart change, and heart change leads to life change, and life change leads to family change and relationship change. And when families and relationships begin to change, churches begin to change. And when churches begin to change, communities begin to change. And when communities change, because churches change and lives change and relationships change, systems change. And society changes. And you and I say, but that doesn't seem to really happen. It doesn't really seem to cascade like those waterfalls and work out that way. And you're right, it doesn't. Because something in what we're talking about here often gets missed. Grace always works from the inside out. Change begins with changed hearts. And by the way, to be fair to Paul, he was in Roman prison. And if in Roman prison, a letter was found that said, slaves, run away, that letter would never make it to its intended destination. Paul was under the constraints of Rome at his time in a culture that largely accepted slavery. And what he articulated without Philemon in play, what he articulated in Colossians was earth-shattering. Be fair. Now, I want him to go further, but he said be fair as if you're serving the Lord, masters, servants, slaves. Be fair. And work hard as if you're serving the Lord. And I want them to go further, faster. And systems do change. Society can change. But grace always works from the inside out. Because change begins with changed hearts. Number two, grace continues through changed perspectives. Perspective is about how I see things, right? Spectacles. Grace continues through changed perspectives. From a changed perspective, nobody is worthless in Jesus' eyes. That whole play on words, Anesimus was useful to you, is useful, was useless when he ran away. Nobody is useless and worthless in Jesus' eyes. And nobody should be worthless in the eyes of the church. Find me one soul in the Gospels that Jesus treated as worthless. How big were their sins? Which ones did he treat as worthless? Again, there are no accidents in God's planning. Onesimus just happens to run away from Philemon, happens to have stolen from him, not right, I'm not saying slavery is right either, happens to run randomly in Rome, quite a ways away. I don't know if you've looked at the map lately. These are not next door neighbors like Eugene and Springfield. Happens to run into Paul, who had led Philemon to Jesus. 
Maybe sometimes we're in prison because of what needs to happen in somebody else's life. Number three, grace gains traction. Grace gains traction through changed relationships. Love and servanthood are king in the kingdom. Jesus is king in the kingdom. But if you're going to describe Jesus, love and servanthood and grace are pretty good words for it, wouldn't you say? Right? The king of kings is the ultimate servant. Like that's earth shattering news. And that's the way of Jesus. And that's the way that changes not only hearts, but communities. And by the way, Paul makes a great argument here for when I've been wronged, I need to forgive on the basis of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And when I've done wrong, I need to make things right. Not that I can undo my sins, but there is a place for things to be made right. And what Paul is doing for Onesimus here is, as another theologian said, wiser than me, I don't want to take credit for this, exactly and precisely what Jesus has done for us. That whole argument, if he owes you, you should forgive him. Welcome as him as a brother. And if he owes you anything, charge it to me. This is a touching picture of Calvary. That Christ found us as runaway slaves, as lawbreakers, as rebels. And he forgave us and identified us with himself. And Jesus went to the cross and paid the debt for us literally. Doctrinally, this is called imputation. To impute is to put to one's account. It's an accounting term. And our sins were put to Christ's account and His righteousness and goodness and justice, justness, by the way, was put to our account when we believed on Him. That's grace. Our sins were laid on Christ and His robe of righteousness is laid over us. That exchange, Jesus treats me the way he should be treated. It's just grace. It's grace that changes the world. Love and servanthood are king and the kingdom, and it changes relationships. And when you and I are changed and our relationships begin to change, grace takes root in communities through changed churches. And kingdom-minded believers, that's you and I, by the way, when we live the Jesus way, and when we live the Jesus way, systems and society change. The law won't change hearts. But changed hearts eventually changed laws. The culture in Roman law said slavery was okay. If you want to dig into the issue at some point, there's much to be found. But I simply want you to realize that in this letter and in the book of Colossians, Paul is arguing that Jesus changes everything. And you might be wondering, why did it work then? And and why does it not work today? Why do we not see the cascading waterfall of changed hearts to change lives, to change relationships, to change families, to change churches, to change society. Why do we not see the waterfall cascade like that today? And did it work back then? I'll give you an argument for, from tradition that it did. We don't exactly know how this played out, so don't bank on this. This is not written in Scripture. But tradition suggests that Philemon did forgive Onesimus. And most scholars believe that Philemon made its way into Scripture for two reasons. First, because Philemon did exactly as Paul anticipated, doing more than even the the apostle asked. That Onesimus was welcomed back into the church and into the household, not as a slave, but as a brother. And with that loving and generous character, Onesimus gained Freedom. Because Philemon changed. And tradition would also tell us, this is phenomenal, I so hope this is true, 
that Onesimus became a leader in the Colossae church. And eventually through the regional church outside of Colossae in a city called Ephesus. And tradition suggests that he became the bishop of Ephesus. The slave, now the bishop in the servanthood kingdom. And that out of tireless devotion to Christian ministry, there are some who suggest that Onesimus not only progressed in church leadership, but may have had emphasis or uh, influence that carried on down the road when they began to compile the letters to make sure that they were collected and passed on to Scripture. You can legislate what is right, but let me tell you, when your mom said, because I said so, did that work? Always that worked? Mom said, dad said, because I said so, and you did it? Yeah, we did it. We resented it, but we did it. Most of the time we did it when we were in their presence. And how did we act when we were outside their presence? We were cooler, we were lawbreakers, we were rebels, and, and mom and dad knew nothing. It's the same way with politics. You can legislate morality, theoretically. No, you can't. The law will never change hearts. Actually, read Galatians. The law will never change hearts. What will? A man named Jesus. A man named Jesus. And you say, but this doesn't always happen. And I would say, you're right. Society doesn't always change to the better. And it just might be because we prefer to vote for it than to actually live it. I wonder if the world doesn't see all of the grace and good of Jesus in our lives and they won't live it. Because we won't live it. We'd like to think the world would be better if it was made or remade in our image. But the reality is Jesus is doing something far better. He's remaking the world in His image. Grace. This is the way. And it ends as we always do. Rachel probably, like, maybe beyond that door thinking, well, are we singing that closing song or not? And I don't, we're singing something about amazing grace, so I'm for it. Rachel, you guys, you guys, you're welcome, you're welcome to leave after I pray. Please stay for the prayer. But, but I'd like to sing amazing grace, right? This is amazing grace. Is that the song? I think we should sing it. I don't care what time it is. Church is not something we schedule, by the way. The people we are, says the man from second service who is already showing up. So I'm going to end with two prayers and we're going to sing some amazing grace. And I'm probably going to cry while we do it. Prayer of salvation. If you need Jesus today and you've never received grace, the reality is all that cross business is about Jesus offering you everything he is. And he can change your life. And it's as simple as receiving what you don't deserve. Pray like this. Maybe you pray with me even online. Dear Jesus, I don't deserve you, but I turn to you and I ask for your forgiveness. And I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and that you rose again and that you're alive today to take over my life. Change me, Jesus. Make me like you, Jesus. That's what I need. I know it. We all pray that in your name. If that's you and you prayed to follow Jesus for the first time, I'd love, love, love to know it. You can tell me on a communication card. You can find me after service. You can email me. I'm Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at harvestchurcheugene.com. I think a lot of you were praying that prayer along with me, even though you've come to know Jesus already. But would you pray this prayer of application with me? The band's going to come and we're going to sing. Dear Jesus, we confess 
that we want easy change. We know that our world desperately needs you. The truth is, we need you. So give us the strength to do the hard, hard work of living grace and living love 